If you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This morning we're going to finish out 1 Corinthians. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for quite a while. And we are going to look at the entire chapter of chapter 16. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you next week we will begin going through a new book of the Bible. We will look at the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm looking forward to that. Very excited about the book of Ecclesiastes and all that lays ahead for us. So um, be looking forward to that. We'll start that next Lord's Day. This morning's sermon is entitled, Stand Firm in the Faith. And our key words for our worshipers and training are collection, stand, and greeting. Now, as we come to the end of 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you of all that uh, has gone on as we've walked through the letter and all that the Apostle Paul had instructed the church at Corinth. Remember that the church at Corinth was in great disarray. And so Paul, throughout the letter, addressed several different issues. He began by addressing divisions that were in the church. He stressed the importance of the centrality of Christ and Him crucified. He sought to defeat a party spirit in which believers were saying they were following one teacher or another. He wanted to clarify the ministry of the apostles and what He was doing specifically. He addressed gross sin within the church namely sexual immorality, including a man who was having sexual relations with his stepmother. And the Corinthians simply saying of all of this, we're a tolerant people, and they were proud of their tolerance of sin. And Paul was telling them, no, you're not tolerant, you're disgusting. Do not associate with those who profess belief but walk in immorality. They need the discipline of the church. And so he had some teaching on church discipline. He addressed lawsuits within the church, Christian liberty, marriage, sex, singleness, divorce, contentment in our circumstances, idols and demons, idol worship, the importance of paying those serving in the ministry. He talked about head coverings and authority. He addressed the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts. And of course, that great chapter in the scriptures on love, immediately followed by some teaching on prophecy and the use of tongues within the church. And as we've spent several weeks looking at the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers, of Christians. And so Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians in 15 chapters, has covered a lot of ground. A lot of Corinthians was Paul answering questions that they had given to him and others were things that he had heard within the church and he was seeking to correct. So now Paul concludes the letter addressing the Corinthians and we're going to look at it in four different areas. First, he answers one more question the Corinthians had for him and this one regarding money and the giving to saints in need. Secondly, he will give them his travel plans. Third, there will be a few uh, final admonitions from the Apostle Paul. And fourth, we will look at his farewell, expressing his love within the Christian fellowship. 
Now, I want you to remember as we read through this chapter and as we work through these verses that Paul has had had several stinging rebukes for the Corinthian church. He's said some very hard things to them throughout this letter. They were very messed up, to put it lightly. But I want you to pay attention in this final chapter, as he ends his letter to them, pay attention to Paul's love to his gentleness, to his sincerity as he addresses these believers. In all of his instruction, in all of his rebukes and his hard words, it all comes to this. Paul loved the Corinthians. Paul loved Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus honored in the lives of the Corinthian people that he loved. And so all that he has addressed, all that he has challenged them in, has been out of a heart of Love. So let's begin with the first four verses as we look at, uh, first, the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So again, at the beginning here, Paul uses this phrase, now concerning. This is the language he used when he's addressing questions that were delivered to him by the Corinthian church. We see this several times throughout the letter. Now, many scholars assume that the Corinthians... um, sent Paul a letter or a messenger with various questions and comments about the state of the church. And so all of this was his writing in response. And this is the final question he addresses. Now, my question as I read through the text was, why did Paul wait to answer this question? There seemed to be some sort of logical flow to all that he was teaching. He finishes talking about the resurrection and then he says, oh, by the way, about giving money. Remember, it's a letter, so letters have a logical flow and progression. He just finished talking about the bodily resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christians who die. Their soul goes to Christ, and at the last trumpet, the body is raised and transformed and glorified and united with the soul in the new heaven and new earth. So why now all of a sudden is Paul addressing money? And for that matter, why these quick exhortations at the end? He just kind of hammers them out, as we'll see in a, in a moment. Now, Paul moves readers from this future, looking forward to heaven, to the resurrection. He's moving them from this future perspective back into the present, and also from what was doctrinal back to what is now practical. So the shift here is a recognition of the reality that the life to come is always related to the here and now. Now, if we truly believe, as Paul argues, all true Christians will, that we are going to leave this world and our bodies are going to be transformed and perfectly united with our soul to live all eternity with God, what shall our concern be now on this earth? I believe that's why Paul held off here. He waited to address the eternal so that now he can address the here and now. 
So as it pertains to money, it's safe to conclude that Paul has in mind Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus taught very clearly that believers have the responsibility of maintaining the abilities and resources that God gives to them. Now Jesus taught that every person holds his or her life his or her natural abilities and wealth and possessions in a sort of trust from God. And we must give account for how these things are used. And so Paul assumes the Corinthians understand this, and he gives them very clear and very specific instructions regarding monies that are to be given for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Now there are several things at play here. First, as you see, he is addressing that this is the same thing he directed in the Galatian church. As he uh, wrote to the Galatians, he is writing to them the same. Now, the collection of monetary gifts is for a need that arose in Jerusalem. And we'll speak about that in just a minute. But also, he's most likely seeking to promote a sort of unity. Now, think what's going on in the early church. There are Jews who are coming to Christ. There are Gentiles coming to Christ. And so now we see this cross-pollination. Paul has stated, we are all one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor Scythian nor slave, nor man nor woman, nor slave nor free. He's going through all these and saying, we are one in Christ Jesus. And so now, as they give, they are giving to the needs of those who they were once at enmity with. Now they are brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is breaking down animosity in the church between Jew and Gentile Christians. Now remember also, early on, after the New Testament church was established, in Acts chapter 4, we read that there were no poor whatsoever among the Christians. But very soon after this, the Jerusalem church experienced very, very difficult times. After Stephen was martyred, and remember, Stephen was martyred by the oversight of Saul, now the apostle Paul. After Stephen's martyrdom, there was a great persecution. You read about in Acts chapter 8. Most of the Christians were driven from the city, and the result was that they had no possessions, they had no longer had any business, and therefore they had no money. They were broke. And the Christians who stayed in Jerusalem, they faced very difficult economic hardships. And less than a decade later, we read in Acts 11, there was a severe famine throughout the land. And so they they were poor, they were hungry, they lost their possessions, they lost their business, they were in a very bad state of life. Now, as Paul wrote to the Galatian church, the very same thing he's addressing with the Corinthians was that he was eager to give to the needs of the saints. In other words, to remember the needs of the poor. Now consider that this surely is a beautiful fruit of God's grace in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul, formerly Saul, by persecution, was robbing many Christians of all that they had, leaving them with nothing 
and often overseeing their murder. And now, Paul is the foremost in seeking support to meet the needs of those Christians. This amazing fruit of the grace of God in the life of the Apostle Paul. So Paul gives clear instruction to the church, not pressuring them, not giving them a set amount, but giving them time and teaching so that it is not done hastily, but it is done properly. It is done joyfully, as he said, as he may prosper. In your prosperity, give to those in need. Now notice when it is to be done. He says it is to be done the first day of every week. Well, what happens on the first day of the week? This is the Lord's Day, today. And so we see from here that this was an element of their worship This was to be conducted on the Lord's Day in the gathering of the people. This was a work to be done through the church to entrust the leadership to be able to collect and distribute the funds that were being brought together. Notice also that Paul disconnects himself from this collection and the distribution of the money. I see two reasons, presumably, why he would have done this. First, and if you read through 2 Corinthians, he hints at this. Paul wants to keep himself from any false accusations that any of this collection that's going on has anything to do with him prospering. In fact, he says, when I get there, we're not going to take a collection. Do this before I get there. Have this ready to go. So he wants to keep himself from any false accusations that this has anything to do with him. And secondly, Paul is helping to train the church that needs to make decisions, to choose and train leaders, those who would be responsible, those who would oversee the collection in the church, and on and on down that road. So Paul calls on the Corinthian church to take up an offering, a collection, during their weekly time of worship on the Lord's Day to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Now, he moves on to his travel plans. Beginning in verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, as we first read this, this is real riveting, interesting stuff, right? I want to ask of this, why did the Lord inspire this to be written as a part of the Scriptures? What is in this passage for our benefit to simply hear what the Apostle Paul's travel plans were? 
Well, there's a lot here, actually, and all of this is tied to a previous statement of the Apostle Paul at the end of chapter 15. The last verse of 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Here it is, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So specifically, Paul is addressing the work of the Lord. Well, how's that related to his travel plans? Look again at verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. You see it? He's using the same language here. He's talking about the same thing. So Paul is bringing together the concluding statement at the end of chapter 15 using Timothy and using himself as an example of what it looks like to do the work of the Lord. You ought to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, like I am and like Timothy is. We spoke this morning in Sunday school of Paul's constant refrain through his letters of imitate me. Paul is imitating Christ and he has a life, a ministry worthy of imitating. And so here he's pointing to his work in the Lord, Timothy's work in the Lord, and saying you do Likewise, And he goes on to describe how he's doing it. I'm going here, we're going there, we're coming there, thinking about this, might do that, etc. All of this is insight into the work of the Lord that Paul is involved in doing. Now, notice the words that he uses in verse 58 of chapter 15. Steadfast, immovable, abounding. Literally, what he's saying is that He and Timothy, and he calls the Corinthians to be overdoing it in the work of the Lord. One commentator said, Paul has in mind the kind of toil that has in it the red blood of sacrifice, the kind of toil that wearies and weakens along the way. In Philippians 2, in verse 30, we read of the servant Epaphroditus that says that because of the work of Christ, he was near unto death. Literally, he worked himself to death in doing the work of the Lord. So what does Paul say to that? Slow down, be careful, hold back. No, that's not what he says. He says in verse 58, again, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not pointless. It's not useless. It's not unproductive. It matters. It will make a difference. It will count. There will be fruit. Now, for Paul and Timothy, this work was primarily evangelism and edification of the saints. And this is the work that Paul commends to the Christians at Corinth. So they can, as Second Timothy 2.15 says, show themselves approved unto God as workmen that need not be ashamed. So this is doing the work of the Lord according to the way of the Lord with steadfast, immovable diligence, a constant striving And the way Paul states it, even unto exhaustion. Now, I'm not, and I don't think the Apostle Paul is suggesting that we not care for ourselves or take the time to rest. But listen, are are most of us really in danger 
of doing the work of the Lord unto exhaustion. Now, I will say that we have many who serve very, very well, very hard. And there are others here uh, who come at 11, and as soon as we say amen, they're gone, and we see them again next Sunday. So the question for each of us is this thing of what is my ministry? How am I engaging myself in the work of the Lord? What am I doing in my job or in my neighborhood or in the ministries of the church? Am I striving to do it well? Am I intentionally working with an eye on gospel advancement? What is my ministry? Am I working hard at it or is it even a priority to me at all? These are questions that Paul's exhortation should be bringing up for each and every one of us. Now, notice also that Paul is working with strategic planning. The work of the Lord for Paul is not simply sitting back and waiting for an invitation or for others to plan ministry that he's going to just tag along in, but he is proactive. He is planning. He is strategizing. Now, you see later on that all that, plan, that, all that Paul had planned out doesn't exactly work out exactly as he had planned. Um, His travel differed from what he planned. So plans and strategies and everything else are all under the banner of if the Lord wills. So let me give you some examples of how this plays out in the life of our church here. The body here in the ministry of Ephesus Church. A big one. Effingham Christian School did not start itself. It was in the minds and the hearts of several men and women who saw a desire to see this and saw it out and worked diligently at it and now uh, several years into it looking to have a graduating class next year. Nearly a 100 students in the school. This is a great ministry to our community. It didn't just happen. It took strategy. It took diligence. It took preparation and planning and hard work and continues to do so. We've worked to transform our 100 building into what we hope eventually will become a full-fledged thrift store to serve our community and to fund ministry and missions because of someone's vision and execution of that and those who are diligent to continue to work at building that up and organizing it and preparing it and doing the hard work week in and week out to keep that running. We now have an English as a second language ministry. It's when someone sees a need, wants to meet it, sees a strategic opportunity for evangelism, And all this has worked together to begin to get that off the ground. There are plans from some of you to raise funds for missions. You want to be senders. You know you're not goers into the foreign mission field, but you want to be proactive in being senders. And so you're thinking of ways. How can we raise money? How can we fund this? How can we be a part of the global mission? Now, all of these things that I've mentioned, and there are many, many more. Many of you serve in Sunday school classes, teaching, 
you work with children, you work in student ministry, you work in men's ministry, whatever it is, many of you are busy serving. Now, all these things that I've mentioned specifically all began in the hearts and minds of Ephesus Church members. Now, three of them were completely initiated, not by your pastors, but by you. They were things that you saw and you did. And so the question that all of us need to ask of these things that I've mentioned, and and there are several others, how are you specifically, how am I specifically involved in supporting these ministry efforts? Are you putting your tax dollars to work for Effingham Christian School? Are you volunteering your time and your donations to the thrift store? Are you working with English as a second language, helping people within our community to learn? Are you planning and working and striving to support the global advance of the gospel? If not, or perhaps in addition to that, what does your ministry look like? All of us have ministry. How are you seeking to be strategic about that ministry? What are your plans about how you are moving forward in that ministry? How are you and your family planning to engage your neighbors this summer? What outreach can we do? Who can you prepare meals for? Now, if you're a member at Ephesus Church and and your answer to all of this is, I'm not involved in those ministries Um, I have no plans for those things that have been mentioned. I'm not thinking strategically about how I can be doing gospel ministry. Paul's exhortation especially applies to you. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Wear yourself out in the work of the Lord. We all need to be engaged in the work of the Lord. It is a very important thing that the church is constantly striving to love and to serve, to do good. And by those things, the world sees what we are and what we do and gives glory to the Father in heaven. We don't do them simply as works. We don't do them to earn anything. We do them as a love for Christ, as an expression of Christ's love, and as a desire to serve and love others. Now, verse 12. Concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, it appears that the Corinthians are asking Paul to get Apollos to return to them, but he has other ministry that he is working at for the time and will return to Corinth when the opportunity arises. Now, some scholars want to speculate here and think perhaps Apollos, knowing how incredibly messed up the church was at Corinth, that he really wasn't about to resume the role of pastoral responsibility at the church in Corinth. I don't know, but they asked him to come nonetheless, and Paul said, I asked him on your behalf. He's busy right now. He will come when he has opportunity. Third, let's look at some final admonitions from the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 
Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such men. Now, in these verses, Paul gives seven imperatives, seven direct commands. It's very important for us to see what they are and why the Apostle Paul ends this book with these imperatives. Now, I would go as far as saying that this is the main point of everything that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. These are not written as optional things but rather these are demands on the part of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Now, what you will see if you study out each of these commands in relationship to the rest of the letter is that these imperatives are the positive side to all of the negative that Paul addressed in chapters 1 through 15. He had 15 chapters, essentially, of saying, don't do this, fix that, you are really messed up here. And now he's saying, do this, do this, do this. And if you read through these, we realize very quickly, if the believers in Corinth and if the believers here did as Paul is exhorting us to, something always to strive for, the rest of the letter to the Corinthians, for the most part, would never have been written. So these are the flip side to their frequent errors in the church. So let's look at each of them individually. First, be watchful, be alert, be aware. This phrase, be aware or be alert, is used in the New Testament, in the New Testament frequently in reference to Christians. Christians' life must be alert, must be aware, awake, our senses clued in to what's going on. We cannot be in a stupor. We must be watchful. Now, remember, he's addressing a people who were in a state of spiritual sleepiness. Is a deadly situation for Christians, asleep to the sin and the foolishness in their midst. Remember in chapter 5 and 6, Paul addressed the fact that the Corinthian church was allowing sin to take place right in their midst. And their whole attitude was, we are so tolerant. Their tolerance of sin was a virtue to them. And Paul's response to them is, don't you realize that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He asks later, don't you judge the people in your midst and evaluate their lives to determine if they are what they are claiming to be? Why allow open, unrepentant sin in the midst of the church? They were in spiritual sleepiness. And he reminds them, be watchful. Protect the purity of the bride. Protect the purity of the church. Deal appropriately with sin. Look out for false teachers and the works of Satan and those who bring dishonor to Christ. Be watchful. Secondly, he says, stand firm in the faith. 
Now, if these seven imperatives are the focal point of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, this single imperative is Paul's magnum opus on the rest of all that he has written to the church. Don't be a feather in the wind. Don't be tossed around by every wave of false doctrine or new book or trend or strategy. Stand firm in the faith. The Corinthians were tossed to and fro by every question that was asked of them. Every new teacher that rolled into town, they chased after new doctrines. And so they were infested with human wisdom. They divided over teachers. They rejected authority and responsibility to confront sin. They were engaging in idol worship and pagan practices. They were elevating spiritual gifts to an unhealthy level. They were rejecting the resurrection from the dead, some of them. So quite simply, Paul is telling them there is no need to shift every time someone asks a question or presents some new teaching. The Word of God is reliable. The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is firm. Stand in it. Do not be moved. This is the same admonition that Paul gives in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. So what is the key to standing firm? The word of God. The apostolic word. The word of God. By the word, we stand firm in the faith as to not be, as Ephesians 4 says, carried about by every wave of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in defeatful schemes. So how do we stand firm? We must know the word. There is no other means by which we are able to stand firm. It is the work of God within us to give us a desire to love His Word and to stand in His Word. And should we not know His Word, we have nothing to stand on. Third, he exhorts them to act like men. I love that statement. He says, in other words, be mature, be of good courage. All throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul is essentially telling them, grow up. Remember, he's rebuked them like children because they were weak and childish. He's saying, stop acting like babies. Remember all the fights in the Corinthian church? Which teacher they were going to follow? Or who had greater spiritual gifts? Or who was the better orator? Ultimately, this landed some of them in the civil courts, in the legal system outside the church. And then in chapter 3, Paul told them, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it. Ouch. Grow up. Be watchful. Be firm in the faith. Act like men. Be courageous. Be of good courage. Be mature. Fourth, he says, be strong. Literally, be strengthened. In other words, have a strong spirit. Paul's writing about a strong spirit that is able to fight against and overcome the flesh. 
Now remember, the Corinthians are all wrapped up in all sorts of sexual immorality and drunkenness, single men unable to keep their hands off of single women, squabbles over who's greater, always looking to be honored, always looking to have a greater advantage. The Corinthians could not handle the flesh. They couldn't control their desires. They couldn't temper their liberties for weaker brothers. And so quite simply, they did not understand the sinful plague of their own hearts. So they did not recognize the danger they were in. It's a good practice for us to always be reminded of our sinful condition. They thought themselves strong. They thought themselves able to continue on in practices that they know were full of temptation. And Paul told them, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be strengthened. Know your own heart. Know your weaknesses. Have a strong spirit and be resolved to fight the flesh. If that's not a resolve, we will fall. We will be tempted and we will follow temptation. Fifth, Paul exhorts them to do everything in love. He gives a quick reminder of his teaching in chapter 13. Chapter 13, remember, is not about weddings and romance. Chapter 13 is about love in the church. The Corinthians were not loving each other. And it was evident in their constant back and forth over issues that I've already mentioned. They were always ready to take offense. This is a great reminder for all of us, right? All that you do, do in love. And so what does that look like? Patience, kindness, not envious, not boasting, not arrogant, not rude, not selfish or irritable or resentful, not rejoicing in sin or wrongdoing or the failure of others. We rejoice in the truth. We bear all things, believe all things. Hope all things endure all things. This is love. And Paul says, all that you do, do in love. Sixth, he writes, to be subject to faithful and godly leaders. Who did the Corinthian believers want to submit themselves to? It seems evident throughout the letter and the way that Paul's addressing them that they wanted to submit themselves to themselves. They wanted to be their own authority. Now, perhaps some of them would follow after their favorite preacher, but even so, it was out of a party spirit. It was not because they had a desire for their spiritual, spiritual well-being and growth. So Paul gives an example here of the kind of leadership to be subject to. Stephanus' family, who was devoted, literally addicted to the service of the saints. He's saying, appoint faithful servants in the church and be subject to them along with those who assist in their ministry. And he used Stephanus' family, his household, as a great example of that. He said, literally, they were addicted to the service of the saints. It's a great statement. And seventh is tied to the previous. Give recognition to godly men. Servants 
For those who have proven themselves faithful, he's saying receive them warmly. Look to them for guidance. Look to them for leadership. Model your life after them. For those who meet God's requirement for leadership in the church, give them, uh, give them time, give them gifts in terms of giving them opportunity to lead, support them, provide for them. And they will be looking out for the well-being of Christ's church. Recognize them. Love them. Honor them. Again, was this the spirit of Corinth? No. They themselves, each and every one of them, wanted to be honored. And so these seven imperatives make up the totality of all that Paul has said in the first 15 chapters, but he states them all positively here. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Do everything in love. Be subject to faithful, godly leaders and give recognition to godly men. Fourth and finally, he offers his final farewells to the Corinthians beginning in verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Paul is reminding the church of his love for them after 16 chapters of hard rebuke. He's saying, I do it because I love you. He delivers the customary greetings from the churches, from other believers. This is Christians simply saying hello to one another. We're thinking about you. We're praying for you. And then we see, we know that Paul loves the Corinthians. How? He ends his letter in the last three verses talking about Jesus. You know someone loves you when they encourage you to look back to Jesus always. He's writing to the church saying, hey, if you're a true believer in Christ, we love you. If you're not a true believer in Christ, if you don't love Jesus, a curse is on you. So I want to tell us the same thing. If you're here this morning and you haven't repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, God is full of anger towards you. Not happiness, not indifference. He's separated from you and you are not reconciled to him. Sin is very, very serious to a holy, righteous, perfect God of the universe. And if you do not repent of sin and turn to Jesus, the only way for sin to be forgiven, the only way to be reconciled to God through repentance and belief in the gospel, if you do not do that, then a curse is on you. You're an enemy of God. And eternal destination is hell. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't love Jesus, if you are separated from God, your problem is sin. And the remedy is Jesus. He, God the Father, made Him the Son to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. My sins for His righteousness. 
How does it work? How can my sin be dealt with in Jesus? Well, Paul says in this passage, after a short prayer calling on the return of Jesus, he gives the answer in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus. This is how the curse is lifted. How is sin forgiven? How are relationships reconciled? How is my relationship to God reconciled? How is hell traded for heaven? An eternal dwelling with Christ. How does this happen? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. Christian, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for us. He rose from the dead for us. He will give us eternal life, forgiveness of sin, a reconciled relationship to Him. That is all grace. And if you're a believer here this morning and you're honest with yourself, you recognize that you hated God and yet still He chose to save you. That's amazing grace. So Jesus is not about karma or about giving you a list of things to do so he'll be nice to you. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He did all that was needed to be done for you and I to be acceptable in the eyes of the Father. So if you're striving and straining to be just a good person, to do God a favor, you need Jesus. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it, but by God's grace, we, the unlovely, are loved. That's all of grace. It is all of grace. Paul ends verse 24, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so I say this in the same way. Not trite, not patronizing, not seeking to manipulate. It's just important for all of you to know. I love Ephesus Church, and I hope you do too. I love you more than you will ever know, very deeply. I'm amazed that God allows me to stand here and do what I do and to do what I do throughout the week and that you all let me keep coming back. I'm shocked by that and it's overwhelmingly humbling. So here's the deal. I don't have Paul's ministry. My strategic long-term ministry and planning only includes... Lord willing, my being here at Ephesus Church. And besides that, you are probably the only people on the planet that will put up with me. So I pray with your other elders. For a lot of years ahead for all of us. As another pastor has said, you've put up with me in my 20s, so I owe you at least till my 40s and 50s. I pray for a lot of years ahead for all of us. And so, like Paul, I can say, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. I love you, and I hope you love this church, and I hope you understand our love for you as your leaders. I'm thankful for the letter of 1 Corinthians. I'm thankful for what God has done through this in the body of Christ here at Ephesus Church. And I look forward to see as we continue to press on in these great, important principles that he's given us. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word, for the sanctifying, piercing, 
challenging, convicting word. We're thankful for the encouraging, hopeful, life-giving word. We're thankful that by your grace, for those of us who are in Christ, that we can rejoice in that it is finished. It is finished in Christ on our behalf. And so we strive to serve, to work ourselves tirelessly in the ministry of Christ, not to earn your favor, not to do you a favor, not because you will call on us to do something because you need something. No, but because we are compelled by love, we are compelled by grace, we are compelled by knowing that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us, O Lord, to break free of seeking and striving to do the work of the Lord in self-righteousness, in a works-based mindset, and rather help us to rely fully on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do good unto others, to be strategic, to be forward-looking in the ministry of the church and in each and every one of our individual and family ministries. As we live and serve within gospel community, we pray, God, that we would be a people who would turn this community upside down that you would give us vision, you would give us passion, you would give us desire, you would give us resources and time in order to be able to do the work of the ministry. Father, help us to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to be courageous, to do all that we do in love. Help us to love one another. Help us to love this church. Help us to love our city. Help us to love the nations. Give us more of you. Stir our affections all the greater for Christ, that he would be glorified, that we would enjoy him forever. In his name we pray. Amen.